Hey everybody, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn it to Jeremiah chapter 29. If um, you've got a pew Bible there, it's on page 1221, it's a numerical palindrome, if you find that interesting. And um, yeah, so we're finishing up the King series, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the exile today. Four weeks ago, we had a missionary here named Vince Burke. And in his sermon, one of the things that he said was a l- very loose quotation of George Vera, who's a father of modern missions. And it went something like this. He said, lots of people are worried about staying on God's plan A for their lives. They don't want to be on plan B. They want to be on plan A. Well, I'm on about plan M. And we need to thank God for a long alphabet and do something. Now, in one sense, that quote is really good advice, I think. And... Um, But in another sense, it brings up a very serious question, and that is, what are we supposed to do when we get off plan A? You know, whether it's God's plan or whether it's your plan A, what do you do when you get off plan A? How does that work? A few weeks ago, I said, and I said this a few weeks consecutively, it's not enough for church to be calibrated for hurting people. Should church be for hurting people? Well, it should be for all people. And most people are hurting. And so should, 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 yes, it should be for hurting people. But remember what I said? That's not enough. Because most of us are hurting from self-inflicted wounds because we're bad people. And so church can't just be for hurting people, assuming we're all innocent victims in our hurting. No, 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 no. Church has to be for bad people. Right? And so it's got to be for people who are not on plan A. And so what, what are we going to do and how do we think this through? And one of the things that we need to, we need to know, I, we could take this from the exile and from a number of different passages we're gonna, that we're going to talk about a little bit today, is that you've got to be ready to embrace a new direction and new terms from God in terms of the plan in your life. And if you won't, the consequences of that can be beyond disastrous. And so there's two questions that we get, you've got to ask to figure out, okay, so what do we do with that? How, do, how, does this, how does this become, how does getting off plan A and what we do, how is this good news? How is there gospel for bad people? And there's two questions bad people need to ask. And you need to know if you're new to this church, my assumption is that's everybody. That there's no such thing as good people. That's always a joke. Okay. Um, and there's these two. One is, what can we do about the past, right? Because like, we've been bad, right? So is there forgiveness? Is there something we can do about the past? And two, now what? What do we do about the future? Because again, we're not dead if we're asking the question in the body. So what? now what? Um, and so those are the two questions I want to talk about. The first is related to forgiveness. And Last week, I ended by talking about one of the kings of Judah named Manasseh, right? You remember this part if you were here? Now, Manasseh was king 52 years in Judah, longest reigning king of Judah, and for the most part, he was terrible. Really terrible. I mean, not only did he worship just everything, anybody, anybody who came up with the idea of something we could worship, he was in on it, but he actually took those idols and he put them in God's temple, which is taking the offense to a whole other level. On, on top of that, he actually engaged in pagan worship where he, like, burned alive his children, some of them. 
And in the Bible, injustice and idolatry always go together. Injustice is idolatry, if you understand the Christian gospel. Um, it always flows from a heart of idolatry. Somebody else is God. If God is God, you'd never do injustice. So if we engage in injustice, by definition, it's idolatry. We just don't know exactly how yet. That's what we've got to figure out. So, and so what the Bible says in relationship, not only was Manasseh doing all of this idolatry, but in relation to that, we got the result we should exactly expect from somebody doing that is injustice that filled all of Jerusalem with blood of innocent people. Right? Now, last week I said that they, the, Assyria, the king of Assyria came, put hooks in his face, and dragged him off. And then I, then I was like, wait a second, the Bible doesn't say that. And I realized... It's a translation difference. In the NIV, it says, the king of Assyria came and put a hook in his nose. In the ESV, it doesn't. It says, he went and bound him with hooks. So that's why I was confused. And I'll tell you what the right translation is later. I haven't had a chance to look at the original. But anyway, the point is, is they went and they put hooks in his meat and carried him away with hooks hanging out. They didn't, they didn't bother with, like, the standard ways of binding people. And, and, they, and they threw him in a dungeon to rot. And then the Bible says he did this. It says, he, that's Manasseh, entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbles himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his treaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Now, it's really easy to just read that and go, oh yeah, well, God responds to response. But take a minute to think about who God is responding to. You've got to have these in context to each other. You've got to understand who Manasseh is, or you will at some point think that doesn't apply to you. The gift of Manasseh is that most of us can reasonably believe, if we're going on grades here, Manasseh's worse than me. Okay? Now, he may not be from God's perspective, but at least we can feel that way. So that when this guy humbles himself greatly before God and prays to him and really repents, God restores him. You can be like, oh my gosh, God restores people. I can say, oh my God there, can I? Oh my God. <laughs> he restores people who turn to him. And, and so therefore, here's what bad people need to know about our past is this. The distance between you and God is not the distance of your accumulated sin. It's the distance of your heart between where your heart is and repentance. That's your distance from God. So you can be far from God. You absolutely can be far from God. But it's not the distance of how many sins you've done and what you might deserve. It's the distance between where you are and where repentance is. The I, God, I was really, 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 really wrong about all that for all those years, for all that time and all those ways. Can we do something now? Can I come back to you? Will you save me? Will you help me? We and what we see in Scripture is that when that happens, this distance is closed about that fast. It's amazing. So there is something that can be done about the past, but here's, here's the problem that the Manasseh passage does bring up. And that is, it, when it comes to the question of getting off plan A, it has the potential of leaving kind of the wrong impression because what happens to Manasseh after he repents? This is participatory. He gets his kingdom back, right? So you see what see the impression that can lead? He was really, really bad, and he lost his kingdom, right? And then he repented, and then what happened? He got his kingdom back. So you see, he got back on plan A, right? Now, that's a little silly because it just, I mean, it just depends on how clear you're thinking about that. I mean, it's not the plan A that included his children being alive, right? 
So that, but in some sense, he kind of got it back going again. And it could leave the impression that that's basically how God works. That no matter how bad you are, if you repent and you really come back to God and seek him, and he meets you, and he justifies you by faith, and he brings you to himself, what he's going to do is he's going to rebuild your life back to as good as the way it was, in the context of the way it was, and he's going to restore all that stuff back to the way it should have been. Okay? You could get that impression. And what I'm telling you is, that would be a wrong impression. God will restore you. He will save you. He will lead you to make restitution. Sometimes that will bring healing. And sometimes in the end, your life could look a lot like, narrative-wise, what it might have looked like well, had things gone well. That's possible. But it's not necessary, and it's not even entirely normal. Listen to a couple of these passages from Scripture. One we talked about a few weeks ago is, is in Judges 2, 19 and 23. This is what it says. But whenever the, the judge died, they turned their— they, being the Israelites, turned their back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of the practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because these people have transgressed my covenant, that I commanded their forefathers, and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them." Whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. And so the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly. And he did not give them into the hands of Joshua. You see the, you see the context there? What he's saying is, plan, what was plan A? Right? Plan A was, God was going to send the Israelites into Israel, right? They were going to beat out the Canaanites. The land was going to be totally free of these other peoples. They were going to have their own land. God was going to protect them, and they were going to have peace. In the presence of justice, right? That's what they were going to have. And that was plan A. And then what happened? They didn't do plan A. And what did God do? Did he say, oh, okay, just, okay, let's just do it again. No, he actually changes the plan, doesn't he? He says, you're not actually interested in driving these people out, so it's all going to change now. I'm not going to drive them out. They're going to be there. Now you're going to have to be faithful with them there. Right? That's not the only example. First Samuel 15, 24. Saul's been made king. He was supposed to totally destroy the Amalekites, and he doesn't. And then, and then Samuel, the prophet, comes to me and says, Listen, dude, that's as bad as witchcraft or a cult. I mean, that's just not obeying is not obeying. I mean, that's idolatry. He's like, you really just sinned against God because you did what your men wanted instead of what God wanted. You think you're God, basically. And so he says, you're, God's going to take the kingdom away from you. And this is how he responds. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Meaning, let's go in together. We'll all worship God together, and then everybody will know I'm still the king. Because I repent. I'm sorry that I did that, but let's just show everybody that I'm still the king, you're the prophet, and this is, this is going to roll, Okay. This is what Samuel says. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Now, a lot of people, when I remember I first read the story of Saul, I remember thinking, you know what, this is really sad. This is a guy who started out pretty well, and he made two significant errors, and then it's just like he was damned after that. I mean, it just, it's just downhill, and then this, it's just awful. And then I was reading a commentary on this just recently, and, and somebody said, you know, this is not, this is not when Saul lost his soul. This is when Saul lost his right to be king. You tracking with me? So, why did Saul end up 
the way he did. Because what was he supposed to do? Believing God several years before this was becoming king, accepting the role of king, which he didn't particularly want. Now what was believing God? Giving it up. What God was telling him to do without making him do it in the short term was to take off the crown and hand it back to Samuel. And Samuel was going to anoint a new king, and David was going to be that king, and David should have been on the throne then. That was what God told them to do. Now, in God's providence, he decided to work it out in the way he did. But God's revealed will for what he wanted these people to do was very clear. Saul was to step down and go back to his farm, and he would anoint another king. And so Saul careened towards his, his spiritual and physical death, not when he didn't destroy the Amalekites, but when he wouldn't hand over the crown. Why? Because he wouldn't accept plan B. He tried to keep clawing his way back into it, holding on to plan A, because he liked it better. Before this, when the Israelites asked for a king, that was another one of those situations. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, it says, Samuel's talking to the people, and when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, come against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king, and now behold, the king whom you've chosen, for whom you've asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. And if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. You see what he's saying? He's saying, look, you should never have asked for a king. The Lord was your king. He was supposed to rule over you. You were supposed to voluntarily submit to the word of the prophet, and people were supposed to do the right thing together. That's how this was supposed to go. And then you said, we don't want that anymore. We want a human king. And I gave you one, and now you have one, and we're not going back. This is the new reality. But then, do you see what he says? But, he says, but wait. This doesn't mean you can't live in God's redemptive purpose. He says, listen, it's a new reality. You're on a new plan. Now the question is, will you obey, believe, and trust, and follow the Lord in this new plan? And the people get really discouraged because they know they've really screwed up. And this is what Samuel says in the next verse. He says, Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, and asked for, our, asked for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Now listen very carefully to what Samuel says. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet, do not turn aside from, the, from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Those are three incredibly important clauses in the relationship to each other, right? One, straight encouragement. Don't be afraid. You follow God in this whole king thing. You can walk in God's blessing. It can totally work. You can, you can have faith in this. You can trust God in this. You can obey God in this. It's just like the other one. It's just different parameters. And then he says, you are right. You are terrible. You're right. They're like, you know, we added to all of our other sins. We added this one. And he says, no, you're right. You did all this evil. For, you know, forget this whole, like, I don't have any regrets because I like how my life is going. Listen, if you don't have any regrets, either you're two years old or you're just being sentimental. Okay? Now, look, I, listen, I like my life. Okay? But listen, 
I went to a terrible college because I squandered my four years in high school and majored in girls and sports and didn't do any, any homework. I have no idea what I might have been able to achieve academically had I actually applied myself to anything. Now, do I want to change my life? No. I like my wife and I found her at Oswego, so I'm not trading that in. But was I an idiot? Absolutely. Absolutely. And do I regret that? Yes. Because I regret all my sins categorically. I'm not going to be like, oh, well, things turn out well, so whatever. No. Every time I have sinned, I regret it. Now, I don't let it punish me because I've dealt with the past. I've received the justification that comes by Jesus. I'm forgiven of all those things. But listen, I'm not going to let my sentimentality make me into a fool. I'm going to look back to all the things I regret and learn from them and share what I've learned and try with myself as I cannot repeat them and with anybody else who will listen so that my pain and the pain I've inflicted on others could save. Not ultimately, but partially and helpfully. So I can simultaneously be sad that I'm— Listen, I don't even, you know, I don't even use letters. Listen, we can talk about AB. I, need to think, I think I need to be on the number plan for what plan I'm on. I don't think 26 is enough. I think I need more. Right? So I'm on plan, I'm plan 3,465, let's say. Let's just ballpark it, okay? I regret all those, but do I still enjoy and love and not regret what God has done in my life? Do I, I, don't, I don't regret what God has done in my life. God has made something beautiful out of plan 3,000. I'm very happy for that. And so I'm thankful for my life. I don't wish I was back on plan 25. Plan 25 is gone. And I don't know what that would have created. I have no idea. But what I do know is no matter what plan I'm on, God can say to me, don't be afraid. Yes, you have done all this evil, but only trust in the Lord your God and follow and trust him. And, and I can believe in the redemptive creativity of God. And I cannot pine in my regret, but I can be real about it. Because for everything I should regret, when I look into what I see in my life now, I can say, that's not what I have earned, that's blessing. Because God blesses people like Manasseh when they'll turn to him and trust him and follow him. So the next thing to think about is, so what do we do? What do we do in the future? What do we do if we're not, we know we're not on plan A? And the first thing is what you don't do, is you don't try to claw your way back. Don't ever do that. It'll destroy you. It will destroy you. Don't ever try to do that. Don't try to, now that doesn't mean don't try to restore a relationship that was broken or something. You walked out on your wife, and then you come to Jesus, you try to make restitution. I mean, you, I mean it, you're never going to get back, back to plan A. That relationship's never going to be what it was before that. That doesn't mean that when you repent and you try to make restitution for what you did to your kids or what you did to your spouse or what you did to whoever or how you did this or who you stole from, you go and you make restitution for that. And sometimes that brings reconciliation. And that brings some kind of a relationship that looks like plan A back. That's all good. That's all good. I'm not saying don't do that. What I'm saying is that's not what you're after. What you're after is trusting God. And then you see where he takes this plan. You're not after the outcome you want that you think is plan A. Does that make sense? Um, there was a guy that did this. The last king of Judah. A guy named Zedekiah. Sorry. Zedekiah, sorry. I got a little confused there. The other, the two before, there's a lot of J's. Anyway, Zedekiah. So Zedekiah is the last king of Israel. 
And for some reason, he thinks that the king of Babylon isn't going to take him out if he rebels because they're a vassal state. And so he, he tells the king Nebuchadnezzar that he's not going to pay his tribute anymore. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes to basically kill him, right? So his whole army comes from Babylon. They hang out in southern Syria. He sends in, you know, the raiding and battle parties. And um, they, they lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. And so Zedekiah says, well, you know, I've been a bad king. I haven't trusted in God or anything like that. But now I'm going to trust in God and God will deliver us from this army, right? That sounds pretty faithful, right? Because God said, if you trust me, I'll deliver you from the people who attack you, right? Makes perfect sense. He's just trusting the Lord, right? Okay, well then the prophet Jeremiah shows up. And he goes, okay, hold on, Zedekiah. Here's here's the thing you need to realize. If you had always been trusting the Lord and this happened, that would be right. But that's not what happened. You haven't been. So now what faithfulness looks like is throwing yourself in repentance on the mercy of God. Because saying, now I'm going to trust God, that's not repentance, right? That's, I just want what I want, so maybe if I act like I trust God, he'll deliver me, and I'll get exactly what I want. That's just pragmatism is all that is. That's, that's thinking you can manipulate God. No, what you're going to have to do is, you're going to have to repent, and the way you're going to have to repent is to throw yourself on the mercy of the guy who is known for killing everyone, who's come to kill you. That's what it's going to take. The passage is in Jeremiah chapter 38. This is also in the, in the 20s, but this is one of the sections where he says this. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life will be spared. Then your life shall be spared, and this city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, which is another name for the Babylonians, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hands. You see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, Zedekiah, you're, on, you're not on plan A anymore. You forfeited plan A. So now you're on plan whatever he's on. Let's say W. Now you're on plan W. Here's what's going to happen on plan W. Here's what faith is going to look like. It's going to look like you surrendering to that king that, you know, darn well is going to rip you limb from limb. But here's what I'll tell you. If you go out there, they won't kill you. You will survive. Your family will survive. And this city of innocent people will not get burned. Well, not really innocent, but monarchically innocent. They're not the king who was an idiot. Innocent of this sin will not be killed. And the city won't be burned. He doesn't do it. He lets the city lay in siege for more than a year. He waits for almost everybody in the city to be starving to the point where there's not bread in the royal court anymore. And then he breaches his own wall so that he can get out. And once he's out, the foreign army can get in and kill everybody. Not exactly a team player. And then he he tries to basically outride the cavalry army of Babylon. Much better play. They catch him. They catch all his sons and all his family. They burn the city. They take the people who are still alive in exile. They drag Zedekiah and all his family and his officials up to southern Syria where the king is. They hold Zedekiah down while they kill everyone in his family in front of him. And then they put his eyes out. And then they drag him to Babylon and they throw him in prison where he dies. 
So I would suggest the, the tactic of clawing our way back to another plan rather than seeking to figure out what faith and trust in God is in the present situation is a bad idea. It's a disastrous idea. Those, those things are gone. Those people aren't gone. Maybe redemption can still happen in those relationships. I don't know what that plan will look like. I'm not saying leave everything from the past. What I'm saying is, don't, you can't recreate it. Some things are broken and they ha- you have to, things have to be rebuilt. And God changes the way things work sometimes. And he has every right to do that. And you can't go back. You can only go forward. And listen, forward is different. And forward looks bad. But listen, forward can be good. And that's the thing that God always promises. You look at any of these situations, what does God always promise? He always promises it will be good. Right? I'm going to leave these people among you, but it's going to be to test you. And if you pass the test and you show me, you'll obey me like your fathers did. It will be good, right? And judges. And Samuel, if Saul would have given up the crown and went back, he would have he lived. I mean, he would have lived. And if they hadn't, if they, if they had, if the king had obeyed and the people had obeyed, God always delivered them. Just read the book of Kings. First and second Kings and first and second Chronicles. Anytime the people obeyed and the king obeyed, God delivered them from no matter who came against them. It was good if they just obeyed, right? All the way through all these examples, it's always good. So here's the example of the other thing. You got to embrace the new terms and the new direction. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. You've got to believe that God cares about you and he cares about his own name and he will bring something good. You've got to believe that. That's what faith is. You've got to say, it, obeying God may look like going out to the person who came here to kill me. It may look that crazy. But sometimes that's what it, faith is. And listen, here's what you need to understand about this. Most people would rather die than do that. Zedekiah isn't weird. Zedekiah, that's normal humanity. We just like to believe we believe in the truth and we'll always accept the truth. Not most people. Not people like me. So there's another story. It actually happens a few years before with the first group that gets deported. And, um... There's two prophets. So the people get taken from Jerusalem all the way to Babylon. And they're, they're in Babylon, and the city is over here, and the Kabar River Canal is between them and the city. And they have to make a decision. Are they going to set up camp outside the city of Babylon? Or are they going to go in and intermix with the people of Babylon? That's an important question for Jewish people who are fundamentally distinct, speak a different language, all that, right? And there's a prophet named Hananiah, and he, he says to them, he says, listen, guys. God is going to bless you. I know you're hurting. I know you're hurting. But listen, God is going to bless you. He wants good things for you. He's going to fulfill his promises about his kingdom. And in less than two years, in 24 months, you're going to be back in Israel. You're going to be back in Jerusalem. He's going to break the yoke, the overlordship of this king, Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to go away. Babylon's going to go away. And we're going to go home and we're going to rebuild our temple. and We're going to rebuild our lives. And so, don't go into that city. Stay out here. We'll, we'll huddle up for a couple of years, and then we'll go home. Listen, God wants to bless you, and he wants to bless us. And he was a liar. He was a liar. And Jeremiah got involved. <laughs> 
And he said, listen, here's what you need to know. God does care about you and wants to bless you, but you're going to be here for 70 years. You're not going home. You're going to die in Babylon. You're going to rot 700 miles from the promised land. That's what's going to happen. And you're not going back. But you're going to make a life here, and God is going to be here because God is not spatially located. God is here, and God is going to bless you here, and you're going to be God's people here, and it's going to be good, and you are not going home. You're just not on that plan anymore. But you are still with the same God. You are still on that plan if you will trust, if you'll have faith, if you'll believe, if you'll walk with Him. And I know that sounds crazy, and I know it sounds terrible. But it can be good, just like every other time for the last thousand years that God's people turned away, they ended up on a new plan, and God said, if you'll turn to me in this plan, it'll be good. It'll be good. And so that's, that's where Jeremiah 29 comes from. You know, we love—you probably know Jeremiah 29 11, right? This, yeah, this is sarcastic. I put up an embroidery, haha, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of like—that's kind of the church's attitude towards— Jeremiah 29, 11. We love to quote this verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Right? Jeremiah 29, 11. My life verse. I can't, listen, honestly, I cannot tell you how many people I have met. Jeremiah 29, 11 is their life verse, okay? Which is great because you go on the internet and there's, you know, good, handsome lacrosse players quoting this, Right? There's any number of mugs that you can purchase that have this that will remind you of that promise. I, I promise you I have captured one-fiftieth of the different mugs on the internet you can purchase with this verse on it. But here's what you need to realize. Jeremiah 29 11 is for everybody. That is true for everybody. It can be extrapolated ultimately from this context to touch in some way every person. That's true. But in terms of its immediate context— it is less well applied to a happy, healthy college graduate going out to start a new job, living the dream, as it is to a 15-year-old girl who just found out she was pregnant. These people are the latter. These people just walked, woke up from a 25-year sin drinking binge to realize there's no coffee and they don't know where they are. That is the context of, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. It is for bad people in the pit of despair, the ultimate screw-ups, who are on plan 3,462. Those are the people this verse was spoken to. In the context of a several verses. So if you've got your Bible, open to that. Oh, I'm going to read it right now. I'm going to start in chapter 29. The first three verses are all, Jeremiah sent this letter. Here's who he sent it with. Here's who he entrusted it to. The, the letter starts in verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who carried the people in exile? God did. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase and do not decrease. And also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yet this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. 
Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. Do you hear that? Why do the false prophets lie to us? We want them to. That was better than I was going to say it. That's good. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now, there are two things there that are repeated again and again. One is that if we seek God, we will find him. That's the biggest and strongest promise that is for everybody in all places and all times. No matter how big a screw up you are, no matter what plan you are, you're on, what do I do? It's so clear. Here's what you do. Then you will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And you can do that when you're living in Babylon. And you can do that when you're living where, whatever plan you're on. Because listen, it wasn't just these people, right? What was going to happen in 70 years? These people who had bought homes and planted fruit trees and made a life for themselves, what were they going to have to do? They were going to have to sell it and go back to the dung heap that was burned, destroyed, tattered Jerusalem and rebuild it. It's going to be just as hard, maybe harder. But that was going to be faith for that generation. And Nehemiah didn't find very many people willing to go. And we could take that three more levels. What we need to recognize is that this passage, which includes really one of the most inspirational verses in the Bible, is in a context of screw-ups. It's in a context of bad people. It's in, a, it's in the context of people who are not anywhere near on plan A trying to find out, what do I do now? Okay, so I can receive forgiveness for the past. Now, what do I do now? Where do I go? And he says, seek the Lord and find him, and you will find him, and he will relate to you, and you will know. You will be able to find out what it looks like to obey. And in this case, it's live a life. Live. Don't put your life on hold and don't try to backtrack. Just live into God. Live in here. It's like, listen, get married, buy a house, accept this is where God has put you. Accept it. Buy a house, get married, have children, plant cherry trees, make, maybe mango trees, I don't know. Make it happen. But embrace this because this is where you are. And so faith in this looks like something as unsexy as purchasing an abode. But that was faith for them. And faith for them had to be that their welfare was going to be bound up with this pagan city. I mean, think about the irony of that, right? They were supposed to be their own people to drive out all of the pagans and be this, like, God-centered place, right? And what, what, what was the new plan? The new plan was, go and live in the most pagan city on earth and build it up. 
Right? Historically, this is about the time where the, the hanging gardens in Babylon are built. I wonder who built those. I wonder if some of those artisans that were taken from Jerusalem and thrown into exile and told by the prophet to go into the city and live for its welfare, I wonder if some of them were the stonecutters and the people and the agriculturalists that built— Think about this. Think about this heritage for the Jewish people. This is kind of funny. They didn't own either of them, but they may have built two of the great wonders of the ancient world. Both times when in exile, in slavery, and captivity. They produced something great. Isn't that interesting? One of the things we need to recognize is that not only were these people receiving the discipline they needed, not only was this transformatively successful, because when Jesus shows up, what's his problem with the Jewish teachers? Is it idolatry? It's not. They've actually gone way the other way, right? It's legalism. They're so, so Jewish And they've built so many walls around the Torah That they've made it really legalistic It's not idolatry You will not find a speck of direct idolatry Now there is indirect idolatry of worshiping laws But you will not find a speck of intentional idolatry Among the Jewish teachers in the New Testament It's gone Babylon works But think about what this also does There's two plans One is that the people would be their own shining city. The next one is the plan that the people of God would go into a city and build it up for its good and its prosperity. And that hopefully God might be known there. And then what happens? Well, somebody comes along later who says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. Who says, I'm the temple. That's Jesus, if you're not tracking. And then later on in the book of 1 Peter, Right, Peter's writing to all these churches in lots of different places. Now, historians know, or pretty darn sure, that Peter's in Rome, but he starts out by referring to the churches in him as in Babylon, which is kind of weird because Babylon and Rome are not close to each other. So why does he say to those who are in Babylon? And, And here's why. He's picking up the Old Testament theme. He's saying, here's what we are, Christians. We're in exile. We're the people of God scattered in the earth. We don't have a homeland. We don't have a centralized temple. But then he gets to chapter 2, and you know what the theme of chapter 2 is? Jesus, who is the temple, is now in that metaphor of the temple, the, the cornerstone, in which every believer is a living stone built into this new, greater temple. Now think about this. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the church, those who believe in Jesus, with Jesus as the chief cornerstone, make up a living temple. Where is that temple? In Babylon. You see what God has done? There's now, a, there's now a third plan. He's taken the two plans with their different objectives, and he's made them one for the redemption of the whole world. He's taken the idea of one shining city that shows to all people the presence and purposes of God, a temple that is truly pure among the peoples. He's taken another plan where he says, go and intersperse, but retain your identity and live for the good of the whole pagan city. And he's taken those two And he's brought Jesus, and therefore the temple can be anywhere. And then he's built the new temple out of human beings who believe in and trust Jesus. So there can be numerous temples throughout the world, among all peoples, in every Babylon, so that every pagan city could be be built up and blessed by that people. And those people could know that there is a temple of God in which the true and living God could be found. The temple of the people who belong to the one true and greater temple, Jesus. God has a way of taking plans B through Z and turning them into a bigger capital A than you could ever imagine. Let A go. It's not worth it. 
It'll kill you. It'll destroy everything. It'll make it so that you can't... I mean, it's just, it's just not... It's not even desirable. God has a profound divine creativity from which he can take whatever plan you are on and turn it into something totally different, totally new, totally better. And what you're supposed to do is painfully clear, right? Trust and follow and seek him. Because that can happen in any situation, in literally any situation. You can be rotting in a jail cell. You can have everything that you want. You can be anywhere, anytime, any place, any situation. You can, you can figure out what trusting God is there, and you can live into it. And the second thing that he promises in this passage is that he's going to do something, right? That's what actually gets repeated the most. I know the plans I have for you. They're plans to help you and not to harm you. Here's what I'm going to do. In 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring this kind of blessing. I'm going to do these things. They're for my overall redemptive plan. It's going to be good for you. You see, it's not even just the promise of, listen, obey me and things might go okay. You know, he explicitly says, no, listen, if you trust in me and you follow me, it's going to go, it's going to go well. It might not go well like everything goes where you want it to, but it's that, it is the best path. It is going to be the best outcome. I have good plans for you. But listen, it is going to feel like walking out to the king of Babylon. It's going to feel that way a lot of the time. But walking out to the king of Babylon ultimately is walking into the very temple of the living God. It is where redemption lives. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to see and embrace and love this pattern and truth in Scripture way beyond my articulateness to communicate it. To believe in your redemption within the situation of whatever plan we think we're on. Father, please help us to not clog us that we don't want to be Zedekiah. We do not want to be him. We want to be the people who go into the city and live for you. We want to be the people who just try to figure out what it means to seek you and find you. You say that we'll, you'll be found by us. So that's really helpful. Please, please, please be found, Father. Please be found. And help us to see what it is and help us to walk in it and help us to help each other do it. And we trust that you're going to do something and we don't even know what. We have no idea. We, but we confess we have no idea what it could look like. And we recognize that this requires us trusting in your creativity and your power and your unforeseen actions. And so please make us people who actually believe and help us to see how bold a thing faith is and how material a thing faith is and how not a cop-out or easy a thing faith is and how redemptive a power faith is. Not that it's powerful just merely in and of itself, but that mainly its power comes from you and your providence and your goodness and your working on our behalf. And we pray, Holy Spirit, you would incline us to yourself and to Christ and make a living temple out of us in this city that's for the good and prosperity of all people and one in which the king of this temple, Jesus, would be known. We pray in his name. Amen.